they've used their authority to go in, uh, do a drug bust, take away, confiscate money, watches, TVs, stereos, drugs, and not always being able to account for where it went. Jim Noble spent nearly four decades uncovering fraud, waste, and malpractice as Minnesota's legislative auditor, a job that made him new friends and enemies with each report. And I said, well, a representative, you're doing your job. I did mine. And let's just keep doing it that way. From the Minnesota Reformer, this is Reformer Radio. I'm Max Nestrak. The legislative auditor is the state's nonpartisan watchdog, charged with investigating everything from pesticide regulations to programs serving the mentally ill to ensure state government is working honestly and effectively. We, by law, have the authority to do these investigations, to issue subpoenas, to interrogate people under oath, and sometimes we're the only people that will do it. Nobles retired earlier this month and spoke to me about his career, including three of the most significant reports his office issued. It's Friday, October 22nd. Jim Nobles has overseen literally hundreds of investigations over his career. It often takes his office months to complete its work, issuing reports that are incredibly detailed and sometimes damning. Like his report illustrating rampant fraud and abuse in the Metro Gang Strike Force in 2009 that led the program to be shut down for good. They were, as the name says, uh, supposed to go out and investigate uh, drug dealings. Uh, They had a lot of authority. But what they were doing wrong is uh, they would use their authority to go in, uh, do a drug bust, and um, take away, confiscate uh, a lot of things, uh, money, watches, TVs, stereos, drugs, a lot of things, cars, um, and not always being able to account for where it went. And in fact, um, we had a hard time tracking down the cars because many of the cars were being used by the Metro Gang Strike Force. Some of them for undercover cars, but some of them just for commuting back and forth to work. Um, So it appeared to us that uh, there weren't the proper controls over this Uh, police organization, that it was literally out of control. I remember, like day one, I was very concerned. Uh, We were investigating people that carried guns, and uh, they were not happy with us. Are you talking about the police officers? Yes. Uh, They were uh, very resistant to us being there. Um, luckily, I had the backing and support of uh, several of the sheriffs in town um, who knew that there were problems, knew that there was corruption. And uh, so they backed us up. But I was always worried uh, for my staff, you know, and they were worried that they would be pulled over uh, by one of these officers. Um, and uh, 
So um, I, uh, I, I went to the FBI um, and told them what we were seeing and met with uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, and um, wanted to know if they would, you know, wanted to take over the investigation at that point. And they said, no, um, but keep us posted, and at some point we will. Now, when you heard from the FBI with the Metro gang strike force that uh, they were like, oh, no, it's okay, you guys can handle this, that didn't, didn't sound very reassuring, or was it, re- you know? Oh, but we coordinated. We talked okay. to them every day. So they said, we have your backs on this? Right, right, right. No, uh, it was just that we were already in a position to have a, a lot of data and documents and uh, doing things. Um, and it didn't take us very long until, you know, we were able to turn over enough evidence to them uh, that they, they took it over from there. Um, I, I do remember very distinctly, though, um, in one of my meetings with an FBI agent uh, telling her, that we had found that the members of the gang strike force would uh, identify a, a, a neighborhood and they would uh, go uh, in in a coordinated effort with multiple cars, multiple agents, and basically kind of block off an area. And, um, you know, if anybody lived in that vicinity of that drug house, they'd probably get their car confiscated or they would be harassed or in various other ways uh, dealt with by the police. I remember telling that um, to the FBI agent. Um, There were other agents there, but the one in particular just said, "Uh, you cannot do that. You cannot do that in the United States of America. (laughs) And you think with civil asset forfeiture, it could cost more to try and get your car back. Oh, many people never got their cars back. Now, I'm curious, just how did you figure out that people, that these officers were taking money or valuables if they weren't recording it as evidence? Or is there a lot that you just don't have accounted for? Um, Well, we had information about um, a, a drug bus, let's say. And... The things that were taken were not brought back that night um, to the headquarters and put in the evidence room. And some things never showed up. Um, Astoundingly, though, we interviewed some officers, and one in particular said, um, you know, I don't do this. But there are guys that go in the back room when the rest of us are in another room and they walk out with things uh, that never end up in the evidence room. And uh, so we uh, confronted the commander of the strike force under oath and said, uh, we've had uh, an officer testify to us that that happens. Do you know if that happens? He said, of course it happens. And I've told them to stop it. Hmm. But they keep doing it. This is the commander. My God. (laughs) And I just sat there a bit astounded. Hmm. You know, something I'm familiar with 
through my reporting is the blue wall of silence. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'm curious with this case, how you overcame that. It sounds like there were a couple officers or at least one who didn't like what they saw. True. And um, uh, there were people in law enforcement around the metro area who were having to deal with the drug problem and didn't see the metro gang strike force being effective. I mean, another part of the story was um, where were the prosecutions? There were hardly any. So you're running a drug task force uh, and you're shaking down a bunch of drug dealers or people who are buying drugs and you're confiscating things. Where are the prosecutions? They weren't working with county attorneys or the U.S. Attorney's Office. They were off on their own doing these things. Did anybody go to jail? Did any did any police officers who were riding around in these cars or maybe taking watches or cash home, did anybody get prosecuted or disciplined for that? Well, disciplined, yes. Uh, you have to remember that, again, one of the problems uh, – well, we, first of all, we turned all of our evidence over to the county attorney and to the U.S. attorney. And there were, there were um, attempts at prosecutions. Um, it was really hard to convict. Um, the other problem, though, was it was the structure of the gang strike force itself. Because, again, it, it's, it's a multi-unit um, uh, strike force from, you know, uh, Bloomington is sending an officer, Minneapolis is sending three, uh, Dakota County is sending some. Um, who's in charge of them? Who has disciplinary authority over them? They ended up kind of in a no man's land of, of accountability and discipline. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder, you know, in today, it's not just um, being a referee that can be challenging, it, it's even more so, there's not as much agreement on basic facts. Oh, absolutely. And I wonder, how does that bode for your successor, who not only has to deal with, you know, growing regional differences, growing partisan divisions, but also the fact that people um, don't accept facts that they don't that don't support the positions they've Correct. taken. Correct, yeah. Or the values that they hold. I experienced that, uh, particularly on the child care uh, uh, fraud investigation, um, uh, because uh, immediately there were many people who said publicly in committees, as we know, there's $100 million of fraud in the child care program, because that's what the news report was. And the news report uh, had a whistleblower who said, yep, I am an insider. I know the system. And there's Suitcases full of cash. F suitcases full of cash. And the TV showed a suitcase <laughs> <laughs> at the airport. So the images, in a way, probably convinced some people. So many people were immediately uh, simply repeating that we know there's $100 million in fraud in that program, and we know that money is going to terrorists. 
So our job was to find the evidence. Uh, the one major source, by the way, would not talk to us. He had been a, a, an employee at DHS in the department, so we assumed, you know, he must have evidence. Well, he wouldn't talk to us until um, I knew um, where he was going to be on a certain day at a certain time in a public place. So um, my legal counsel and I showed up there with a subpoena. <laughs> and we served him with the subpoena to come to our office with his evidence and to be uh, interviewed under oath. So he did put him under oath. He had virtually no evidence at all. He had a lot of hearsay. He heard this from this person and this person and this person. So we're not getting evidence from him. So we go to other places, uh, and we have to address the two points. Is there fraud? Well, uh, have there been prosecutions? So we got the court records, and there had been prosecutions. Uh, and they had proved several million dollars, six, seven million dollars that I recall, of fraud by this scheme. And the BCA, the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, had been involved, and they had set up cameras and you know, they had a methodology for proving that, yes, there had been fraud and county attorneys had, had prosecuted it. So, so we could say these are the facts that have been proven. Now, where did the people come up with the $100 million? And not only the whistleblower, but the head investigator of the fraud in child care, he believed it too. So we brought him in. How do you come up with $100 million? And he showed us his document. And it was, well, we found fraud over in this facility, and we found fraud over there. Now, there are a bunch of other facilities that are run by similar people. Somali-Americans. Right. So we're just going to assume they're doing the same thing. And he had many other assumptions that he made. And so his $100 million was based on uh, a lot of assumptions, conjecture, leaps uh, of logic that just had no basis at all. And then we turn to, is the money going to terrorists? Well, how are we going to know that? I mean, we can't go to Somalia, but we can talk to people who do. We can talk to people in the Somali community. We can talk to law enforcement people. Uh, Lots of money flows out of the United States legitimately to all kinds of other th uh, countries, into Mexico. Many families are kept alive by people coming to the United States, earning money, and sending it back home. Um, and as you may recall, um, there was a time when um, the, all of the uh, financial transaction institute, financial institutions stopped transferring money to Somalia because they thought it was too risky. Part of it was um, the Treasury Department and other federal authorities watch all of those transfers. And if they see a large transfer going somewhere, um, they're going to track it um, and be maybe concerned about it. So was there cash going over there in suitcases? Yes. Because that's the only way the people could get the money there. But also, we talked to people who 
knew what was going on in Somalia, both in the Somali community and law enforcement. And they said, you know, other people track those transfers too. The terrorist organizations do. They wait until they head out to the grocery store and they have a checkpoint. And they say, uh, we know you got 100 bucks. We need 10 or we need 50. Whose fault is that? Who's committing the crime? The other point I want to make, though, is um, a kind of long way to get to what I was going to tell you. Neither side was satisfied. The people who were convinced it's $100 million in fraud said, Knowles, you, you, you sort of did a good job, but, you know, you didn't really find all the evidence, did you? It's, it's out there. You just didn't find it. And I said, you know, maybe it's out there and I didn't find it. But, boy, I'll tell you, we looked everywhere we could. People on the other side were angry at us because in our report, we identified that there had been corruption and fraud in some facilities owned by people who appeared to have Somali names. All we did was name the court, the, the, the court case, you know, state of Minnesota or Hennepin County versus, and there's the name. And there were legislators who said, you know, did you really have to do that? Did you really have to name people with those names? And I said, yeah, I felt like we had to convince everybody that we had done a rigorous, thorough job, that we talked to the prosecuting attorneys, we read the evidence, we looked at the cases, and this is what we found. But rather than taking comfort in <laughs> the fact that we said we couldn't find $100 million, they took offense that we brought Somalia and Somali names. And I had a delegation of 15, 20 people from the Somali community come to my office and say, you know, uh, your report really hurt us. And, and so, you know, I was caught in this situation of, you know, your heart bleeds for people who are facing... Um, prejudice in the Twin Cities, terrorists in their homeland, uh, political ac allegations, um, but nobody's satisfied with what we did. <laughs> but, you know, in the end, feeling we, we did the best we could. We laid out the facts as we found them. Hmm. What do you think is the most important audit you've conducted over your career? You know, I've uh, thought a lot about that, um, and there have been a lot uh, that I think had impact, um, evaluations, audits, uh, and investigations. I actually think the work that we did at the University of Minnesota about a suicide, there was a young man... Um, uh, had a wanted to be a screenwriter and he had gone out to Hollywood and uh, his mother went out to visit him because she was very worried about some of the things he was writing to her and she found that he was in a psychotic uh, crisis he uh, he was uh, imagining all kinds of things 
that people were trying to kill him and he just, I mean, he was in a really state of psychosis. So she brought him back and tried to get treatment and it was hard to find treatment for him, but she brought him over to the university and they put him in a drug trial for uh, a drug uh, that a pharmaceutical company was, you know, they, they paying the university to sign up people for this uh, drug trial. Um, he went through the drug trial and they dismissed him to a, a, a house uh, and he committed suicide. And the, the, um, the mother of this young man um, tried to get records of what had happened and she was very unsuccessful. And at one point, she did uh, get a lawyer and brought a, a lawsuit against the university. And she lost the lawsuit. And then the university sued her for damages. And um, she had come to me back some years ago and wanted me to investigate that. And I declined. But um, the issue came back up um, some years ago, because it started to get national attention, there was an ethics officer at the university who looked at this case and was very concerned about the way it was handled, didn't think it had been handled properly by the physicians and the other people there. Um, the individual's name who committed suicide was Dan Markinson. And um, so there was... Uh, a lot going on nationally about the Markinson case and lots of allegations that the university had succumbed to a drug trial that wasn't very well run because they were being paid lots of money by the pharmaceutical company. And so a number of ethics, uh, medical ethicists around the country started to write about it. And then uh, even faculty members at the university they asked the president, um, they asked him to conduct an independent investigation, and he refused. He said, it's a subtle case. We didn't do anything wrong. And then I had a, a legislators come to me um, and say, uh, many people from the university, many medical people have come to me and said, you know, this really needs to be investigated. So we did. And we were extremely critical of the way the trial was conducted. We said uh, very clearly that we did not blame the university or the drug trial for the suicide, that this young man was very psychotic, but he had not been cared for adequately and probably dismissed too soon, not enough follow-up. But mostly, I think, we were really upset about the way the university had treated the case. Its unwillingness to be transparent. Its unwillingness to uh, meet with the family. To meet with the ethicist. And so we were extremely critical. And um, we presented that report um, uh, a very strong language in the report about how irresponsible the university had been with this case. And it really did, I think, transform the university in many ways, and I have followed up. So, you know, 
again, just being able to kind of pull back the the veil, I guess you'd call it. No, I, I want to call it, there is a brick wall hmm. around the university at times. There is an absolute brick wall that they put up uh, uh, against any criticism. And it is hard to penetrate. So I, I just feel like, you know, maybe not because it had widespread impact on a lot of people. Maybe those who came after Dan Markinson were treated better. But I think the ability to break down these walls that block accountability and transparency, and that's why I value the Office of the Legislative Auditor and have really appreciated the opportunity to work there, is because we, by law, have the authority to do these investigations, to issue subpoenas, to interrogate people under oath. And sometimes we're the only people that will do it, uh, who have the authority, and I, I hope the credibility, to do those kinds of investigations. Well, Legislative Auditor Jim Nobles, I'm so happy you took the time to talk with me today. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This show was produced by me, Max Nestrak, and edited by Patrick Kulikin. Special thanks to Johnny Vince Evans, who composed our theme. If you haven't already, subscribe to our newsletter, The Daily Reformer, at minnesotareformer.com. You can drop me a line at max at minnesotareformer, all spelled out, dot com. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.